get over Ming's kingdom, we should land near the entrance of the abandoned drain tunnel. Our ship can be well concealed there. I remember the place. Hello there, Barney here. Welcome to Loco Ludus, a podcast about tabletop game modifications in all their forms. By virtue of the date, this episode is some kind of Christmas special, and in my opinion, it does fit the bill. It's another interview, this time with Hankerin Furinale, the man behind Runehammer Games and Index Card Roleplay. ICRPG. The interview was a lot of fun and we cover a lot of different topics. What I wanted to say is that we did try the previous week to record an interview as well, but for various reasons it didn't it didn't work. On balance, I actually prefer the second conversation. But I think there were a couple of things that uh, we didn't quite get into in the same the same detail the second time around. So I just want to mention them very briefly. I, th- I think the main thing was was what Hank had to say about collaboration and also about the evolution of Index Card RPG. So although he does mention that, he, in the first interview he, he spoke in a bit more detail about how the game evolved. And he said that The, the the rule system and the the key terms if you like used in index card came directly from his weekly games with his gaming group and he talked about how he came up with i think three different rule systems before it suddenly dawned on him that the rule system was the one they were playing every week, the one on the table, as it were. And how that, in a sense, was a collaborative effort or emerged for him out of the interaction and the dialogue with his with his players. One thing that, amongst all of the really fascinating things that we talk about, the one thing that stands out for me, being a a dice pool uh, role player most of the time, the way that, in contrast to that, that Hank really puts this emphasis on single roles really really important single roles now it might be that other dice are used to get to that single role but he really likes this moment this moment of 
of decision where everything hangs in the balance and that it also hangs in the balance on this one dice, this one die, this this one little object. And that, I think, is, is really interesting. It's a really interesting thing to think about in terms of how a game is formed and how we conduct our games. Anyway, here's the interview. Have a great holiday, everyone. Bye-bye. Hi, Hank. It's amazing to be recording an interview uh, with you. <laughs> I think we pushed all the proper buttons this time. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've realised I've realized something. We are now in the future. Uh, how do we get here? Just by well, waiting? Or? <laughs> well, something like that. Because, because, of course, the month of Blade Runner, the film, has elapsed. Oh yes, yes. We're we should be seeing uh, flying cars and giant holographic Coca-Cola ads any absolutely, day now. Absolutely, yep. And so, I, what I what I know you're not a fan of, um, uh, you know, wearable tech so much. But I, thought, <laughs> I thought, look, I've got, I've got a, I've got a JR. Uh, yes, Sebastian's home. I've, this is my <laughs> this is my déjà vu machine, and I can either I can either increase increase the deja vu uh, or I can or I can or I can suppress the deja vu oh I see it's got a dial built in <laughs> that's what I thought so I, I thought I could just use that for a minute just to help me so I could kind of go feeling quite sentimental with my colander helmet on hey man ready. it's the latest thing either ready for the construction site or the kitchen but visible at all times. That's, that's <laughs> the key. So, I thought, I thought, as you know, on this podcast, we we ask, we don't ask ordinary biographical questions. We ask mm. different questions to get into the mind of the of the the interviewee. The the old kick in the head, as they call it. It could be, but this is this. It would be like a pillow. A pillow through the ear. <laughs> okay, I don't know which one is weirder. <laughs> Let's go for it. Okay, so I'm going to start off with an easy one. I've got, I've got an easy one for you, and it's this one. You are going back in time to visit mm -hmm. Friedrich Nietzsche. Which, ah. con which console? Which console and which game will you take to help him out of his insanity in 1890s Germany? <laughs> well, I think my, my gut reaction was going to be Chrono Trigger because just that's what I want to play. Also, I would look really cool knowing the game front to back. He wouldn't be like questioning my boss fighting skills. But upon reflection, I might have to go with something simpler so that he wouldn't be too freaked out. So I might go with... Um, like say Atari twenty six hundred, and the game would be Frog Pond. Okay. <laughs> so this was a classic from my day where you you only push left and right and push a button and you shoot a little tongue out of your frog and flies are going by and whoever eats the most frogs or the most flies wins. So this this could bring me from the future and him from the past together in the middle. 
<laughs> maybe maybe you would see a kind of a small Wagnerian possibility in there. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And then over time, he could tell me, you know, the plight of the fly versus the plight of the frog, and we could we could get into all that. But yeah, Frog Pond. Also, I think I could own him on uh, on hand stamina. <laughs> my my hands have have been grown on video games where he would have these gnarled old claws and so i would be like i could <laughs> i could own him as we say these days <laughs> so so it'd be it'd be a case of beating nietzsche yeah him being at, nietzsche at really game. became somewhat irrelevant <laughs> i just kind of wanted to play frog pond <laughs> okay well well nietzsche nietzsche has had his revenge and through his dastardly eternal return mm -hmm. um you uh, you have signed up to perform in a Broadway musical basically forever, over and over again. Which, which Broadway musical is it? Which, music, which musical is it? Oh my gosh. Now that's supposed to be a, a philosophy of making moral choices, not just eternal torment, right? But anyway, okay, so which musical do I get stuck in forever? Oh my gosh. God, that what? is heinous. You know, I'd have to say it would Get be weekend. our town. Our town, okay. <laughs> it would be our town, and uh, and my my character would be the uh, geology professor because he he's not in any of the musical numbers. <laughs> he just does the narrative at the beginning of the geological history of the town, and then you never see him again throughout the play. So you could just be in the back drinking or maybe next door at the pub. <laughs> Okay, so, so basically you come in early, you say your lines, and then you're out of there. Yeah, you wear a nice sort of, you know, uh, uh, an austere kind of a suit. You say your piece without screwing up all the scientific jargon, and you've got your paycheck. <laughs> and on the Saturday matinee, you could play Frog Pond with Nietzsche in between before the Saturday night show. If, if it has to be that way, then yeah, I guess this is a life that's coming together. <laughs> okay, um, what's your favorite slapstick gag? Favorite slapstick gag has got to be slipping on banana peel or football to the groin. I'm going to go football to the groin, actually. And have you ever <laughs> have you ever used that in a game? <laughs> uh, we have used we have used banana peel. Okay. Banana peel has come up, but I don't think we've ever stooped so low as to employ the perennial classic of football to the groin. You you really have to be at like three a.m you know, on about 12 pints to do football to the ground. <laughs> cool. Okay. Um, okay. I don't know where we are or what time we are, but you're a bard. You're, you're, you know, this, this musical theme is still there. You're, you're mm -hmm. a renowned bard. What's your gimmick and your costume? Whew. What's your gimmick and what's your costume? Well, hmm. <laughs> I never really wanted to be a bard, per se. I guess my gimmick would be like, uh, I would just have sort of a cardboard cone and I would just go all sort of beatboxing and like, like, you know, mouth instruments. That way I don't really have to reveal how bad I am at actually playing real instruments. So that'd be my gimmick. The wondrous auditory experience that is hankering for a nail. Now, my costume would probably be, I, I think I would go with the kitchen theme. So you got like a salad bowl helmet. You've got a uh, 
kiss the dwarf apron. You know what I mean? You, you've got your slippers on and you're like um, your trout oven mitts. <laughs> and, and this is what you're apparently going to pay money for when, when you're dealing with, with my bardishness. <laughs> so, so definitely level one. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so you're, you're, you're being um, immortalized in paint in, in the Great Hall of Runehameria. Oh, wonderful. Um, what style is the painting in? This is part one. What style is the painting in? Well, it's got to be, you know, as a, as a, a connoisseur of art, I love impressionism. But for me to be immortalized, I'm going to need like hyper-realism, <laughs> like, uh, like Van Eyck style, like the Dutch masters. I'm going to need that. Like there's a reflection of me in like a chrome bowl in the background and the reflection is impeccable. <laughs> and now, um, uh, so, so there, there you are, it reflected in the, in the bowl. Um, mm -hmm. um, of course, index card RPG is on the table next to you. Always. What what three other games will be visible? One role play game, one war game, one board game, or two of the same category. Hmm. Okay, now this okay, now this is coming back to me. So these ones I have because we've chatted in the past, and I'm gonna stick to my answers because I like my answers. So I got this one. Um, yeah, you can turn up or down the nostalgia. <laughs> I'm turning up the nostalgia on this one, exactly. So for the RPG, I want to go with Burning Wheel because it's one of the few books I actually go back and look at again. Like if, if we're playing, yeah, you have it at the table and stuff, but just as a, as a, a work that is uh, concordant with a portrait by a Dutch hyper-realist, <laughs> you would want the burning, the burning Wheel to be sitting there. It's only fitting. Um, as a war game, like stacked right there under the burning wheel, I'd have to go with the, the main rule book from Relic Blade and not even for humor reasons, just because I think that I love that game. It's just awesome. I know I want to look at those funny little doodles of that night with this sort of silly sword for many years to come. And then, um, my real whopper is my, is my board game that I would have forever, which is the ultimate classic, the game of Sorry which I absolutely love. And, you know, this has come up a few times in the past week, which is weird, about people saying, like, what's sorry? That's a game? And I'm like, oh, oh my God. You're about to discover the, the edge of the black hole of fun, which is sorry. It's like an amazing board game that can be skinned in, in any way you can imagine just by sort of choosing who the players are going to pretend to be. So that will be sitting there, but it'll be like a worn old box of sorry with like a piece of masking tape. Did they have masking tape in the late Renaissance? Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, this is but this, a is, <laughs> this is in Runeham area where you've got the you can you can absorb all of the past. Oh, it's transdimensional, so we yeah. definitely have masking tape. So there's going to be a, a tiny piece of masking tape on there. The corners are worn out, and it's rendered in impeccable detail. <laughs> So even if you never play it, it looks like it's been played. The exactly. Yeah, you got that cred. You got that board game cred because the box is worn out. <laughs> okay. Okay. My last. Well, no, it's not quite my last. I've got two more. I've got two more questions. Okay. Um, okay. You are installing 
um, a guard, a, a, a fire guardian threshold magic thing. Um, okay. And it's and it's and it's it's a scary face. Whose face is it? Oh, I see. So this is like a a, a fire entity that is like imbued upon a portal or a door, and it's like. Go back, you who dare the fire portal. Yes. And who does it? And who does it look like? A bit like in that Sinbad movie when when it comes out of the mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the, the well. Uh, I think it looks like I can't remember which is which, but either Waldorf or Stadler. You know the two really old Muppets. <laughs> it looks like one of those guys. <laughs> Like you know when they were when they were the Marley Brothers in uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol, yeah. and the door knocker like turn and looks like uh, old Ed Marley or whatever. That I just can't help but see that. Yeah, and he's got the big jowls and he's like, <laughs> yep. So only he's on fire. <laughs> I'll give you both of them. They because they are clearly a pair, aren't they? Okay, great. Yeah, so you get a double. You get twice yes. the scare. Mm-hmm. Okay, the last one is this. I don't know where we are, what time it is, but you are undercover and mm. you are going to become, you are, you are the chef for the king of the river trolls. And <laughs> to, to, as part of your kitchen equipment, uh -huh. um, you know, you could be like Steven Seagal or something. What is that? Under Siege or whatever, where he plays the chef. I don't know. But um, anyway... <laughs> To, to do the job, because these are big trolls, you've got your big Nodachi sword. Mm -hmm. um, but to be authentic, you've got to have a recipe engraved on the sword. What recipe are you having engraved along the edge of the sword? Well, if I want to make my masters happy, I guess it would have to be hobbit jelly? Okay. You know, isn't isn't that what the, the trolls wanted? Is they wanted to sit on the hobbits and squish them into jam. Okay. So yep. so I would I would oversee the unpleasant process of taking the, the aforementioned hobbits and putting them into a sweeter, more palatable uh, final product, <laughs> which would be sold in five gallon buckets. <laughs> That's horrible, and it just tastes like guts. That's just awful. <laughs> But to a troll, you know, you spread it on like, you know, like a, uh, I don't know, like a plate-sized crumpet. <laughs> um, and the, 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 I think every so often you might get a bit of cloak, some kind of, bit of cloak, yeah, yeah. like some cloak roughage. Or that little, uh, the leaves of Lothlorien, you know, like every once in a while one of those little medallions wind up in there and they're like, not idly do we spit out the leaves of Lothlorien. <laughs> This one really takes the cake, I tell you. <laughs> the dumb meter is like shaking at the maximum setting. <laughs> well, um, I, now that we've now that we've reached that point, I can move on to my serious questions. All right, the pillow has been inserted into the ear. Um, you've talked quite often about the RPG underground, and as this is a podcast about mm. home brewing, and I guess. The, the the premise that uh, the, the the home that the house ruling 
it's house rules are different to homebrew rules, et cetera, et cetera, which is slightly problematic. Please, could you help me out and say a little bit more mm. about what you mean by RPG Underground and perhaps uh. more specifically how you've seen it take shape or how you understand it yourself personally? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a nice T-ball. Well, well, for me, I think it's, it used to be that the, at least from my experience, the underground was the only part of the hobby. The whole hobby was underground. Like it was, it was all, it actually took a, a bit of, um, of effort just to get into it. It was not easy to discover it and to learn it and, and find out. And so, as we all know, now we live in an era where it's very high profile and really popular. And so that popularity and some of the like better production value and the greater accessibility for new people is fantastic. But in my mind, it's created a little bit of a two chunk hobby. And this the one chunk is this sort of more casual or popular or kind of newer chunk. Um, but then to me, there's this underground chunk, which is the not driven by being cooler or being more into it. You know, these are equal groups, but the underground group to me is like into self-publishing and into making all their own content and doing everything the hard way for no damn reason, you know, and like, it's not necessarily old school because I don't really believe in that dichotomy, mm -hmm. but the undergrounder is like almost never satisfied with something that he or she like buys. They, they always need to make it, even though they can buy the coolest new stuff. <laughs> they just feel this, this itch. And so for me, as like a sort of online personality, um, I wanted to embrace that and be like, hey, everybody, if you're, if you're like this and you're weird like me, then here are some tools that might help you like reach a more publishable level. So you aren't just undergrounding for your group, which I think is where a lot of people spend out their RPG days. They, they never really come out of their their gopher hole and that's totally fine and, um, i mean I've, I've realized recently that discord is really in, interesting for that you know so many yeah, yeah. people kind of pop up and you get the sense of all of the things that they're doing and you think yeah well i think discord is nice too in specific for our hobby because i mean let's face it our hobby is a little bit of a, a gandalf in the the basement library kind of hobby like you know a lot of people who do this kind of stuff on the regular can be somewhat introverted and kind of studious. You know, you're kind of pouring over these tomes and, you know, and I think Discord is is very friendly environment for those types of personalities. They don't feel too, you know, too hand wavy and too like, you know, fake smiley kind of stuff, which, which I feel sometimes like YouTube and RPGs can feel a little bit like, sort of like a family photo, you know, where everybody's kind of smiling and everybody's having a good time, but there's a little bit of a, as some kind of implied, you know, over happiness going on. And I think without video, like on something like Discord, you don't get any of that. You know, you're still kind of in your safe little space at home and you can kind of role play and text and it feels really comfortable. So I think that's been a great advent to the hobby is really intuitive chat rooms, I think are really nice. I mean, you probably remember the old days of chat rooms like I do when they're just abominable. It's like reading the newspaper. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, sorry, I didn't realize that reading the newspaper was abominable. <laughs> um, I, I have to, I have to say that I, I don't think I ever took part in any chat rooms. 
back in the day they were always this thing that you could look at online and you mm-hmm. and they just seemed like this weird thing yeah and it seemed like if you sign up maybe you would get some kind of virus or something like it was all it was all a little bit strange <laughs> well well i think it's also i suppose for me i think i've always been someone who's more used to human contact mm-hmm. been busy enough doing that so if you dip into the internet a bit it's quite nice that it's static and you can get something so this idea of actually trying to have meaningful interactions with people online is is a, is a relatively new thing for me yeah I, I mean it's especially it's the dailiness of it is is very very new mm. like back in the day it was much more of a a bit of a, a an event to sit down and attempt to contribute to some boards and sort of try to get online in a in a functional way and nowadays it just feels very intuitive but um i agree with you it does it does have the negative effect of maybe not putting in as much effort of making sure you're meeting up with your homies or like you know going to the slight trouble to assemble um so i don't know we'll we'll see how it all shakes out it definitely changes every few years i noticed Kind of like how everybody was playing games on their phones there for a minute. You know, this is like three or four years ago. Like everybody was just playing all these games on their phones. And then I think everybody simultaneously realized like, oh, God, like my eyes hurt. And this is like weird. I'm using all my time, like planting imaginary trees. This is bizarre. Well, I kind of parallel. Go on. Oh, and I was just saying, I don't, I don't see very much of that anymore. A and parallel, so I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see similar rises and falls, you know, and how much we use Discord and how much it kind of, you know, is a surrogate for real tables and stuff. I think it'll rise and fall a little bit. A, 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 a comparable example, I think, is the DS, which, um, you know, was the 3DS, and then they dropped the 3D again. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, because it was hurting everybody's eyes. And... <laughs> right. so it's a funny it was... thing. They did it because they could, <laughs> not because they should. Um, and so to follow up on the RPG Underground, then where do you mm. where do you see it going, and where would you or where would you like it to go? Mm. What's, your, what's your hope? Well, what's your hope? Well, I think like a lot of people out there who are into special interests uh, experience the curve that we in the sort of RPG hobby are just now experiencing, which is like a a great example would be skateboarding. Like people who were skateboarding in the early eighties were hanging out and they were kind of considered like, you know, kind of shady and kind of scuzzy and kind of like a nuisance. And they kind of had this kind of badass kind of, you know, air about them. And then you fast forward to the end of the eighties, like, everybody's skateboarding it's on tv and like skateboarding super cool it's like what all the cool people do and like their experience of going through that must have been really painful of being like seeing their little underground baby become popular and become televised and all that stuff and i think we're going through that right now and i think we'll see the same pattern that you see with skateboarding which is that basically the sort of the the eye of excitement or enthusiasm or even sort of media coverage sort of gets satisfied or sated with eating up this special interest. And it kind of then fades back into more of its original state, just with a lot more people involved. Cause, but cause I, you... I don't think you'll be seeing Wendy's RPGs like on the annual for the next decade. I, I don't think it's going to be like that. I think we'll, 
you know, we'll get it. D and D will get extremely popular, which already it's kind of mind bending how popular it is. Mm. And then I think it'll kind of steadily return to, to the basement, so to speak. Cause you've, you've spoken with a little bit of, I don't know, trepidation, anxiety about casual gamers or the, yeah. the problem, if you like, in the neutral sense of, of casual gamers. How is that different to new gamers and bringing people in? I, I'm not sure that it's entirely different. Um, I think it's just like those skateboarders. Mm. It's just, I, I'm, on, I'm in that sort of part of the, of the overall like cosmos of this hobby. I'm in that part of, you know, I really used to like, here's another way to think of it. I, I love having a bunch of new people discover something that I already, that I really like. I know that they're going through some of the discoveries that I went through and that's fantastic. But it can come down, come down to something as simple as like sort of not wanting to be in a line or in a crowd. And so I'm happy to have all the, the people and the influx, but there is something to be said for like being into something that a lot of people aren't because you're kind of in a small group and you don't, mm -hmm. you kind of quote unquote, don't wait in line or you don't stand in crowds. And so, you know, anybody who's gone to Gen Con in the last five years knows that, I mean, it is a crowd now. It is a colossal crowd. It's like the likes of which I never would have imagined, like if you warped me back to 1990. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, yeah, that's where a little bit my anxiety comes from is like that feeling of being in that crowd, you know, mm -hmm. or being like, you know, one of zillions who are into this. And, you know, I know that nowadays people talk about, you know, gatekeeping as a bad behavior and, and it is a little bit crummy behavior, but there's just no denying that it is a cool feeling to be in on something you feel like everybody isn't in on. It's cool. You know, like when you know a band and nobody's really discovered the band yet, you don't have I, to be a dick about it later, but it does feel cool when you're kind of in on it at the, at, in the sort of front wave. I really liked Radiohead before they went all experimental and got really huge. And I saw them, <laughs> I saw them in Gloucester Leisure Center supporting James. If that means anything to you. Um, so that was quite funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, but so that's got it. It's at the same time, you're like psyched, like, oh yeah, man, Radiohead is great. They're going to do great in this new dimension. They're going to be super popular. But at the same time, you're also like, well, it sure was cool though. <laughs> you know, back when we were kind of, you know, people were looking at us weird because we were into it, you know? So it's, it's not a simple thing, but um, I've just tried to be honest about it online and, you know, not be exclusive to anybody. Um, so as, as my focus is homebrewing and games that allow for those kinds of spaces, mm. um, you know, consciously, deliberately, it's baked in. Um, yeah. I really wanted to ask you about the process by which index card roleplay went from being a homebrew thing that you had to being the published the published thing that it is now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you've got the nuts and bolts side, which are just like, I did have to reach a point where I was like, needed to sit down and assemble it in a way that I felt compelled. And, you know, that, that was the end of the journey, you know, which was saying, hey, I think I have good enough layout and art skill and writing skill that I can do this. So that was like sort of the end. And then the more interesting part, I guess, is what you're pecking at, which is how we even got to me wanting to do that. And um, 
I wish I could say that it was had as an idea, um, but it really was never even a truly an idea. It was just sort of what we were doing. Um, and, you know, I like so many people out there, like uh, especially say in the fourth edition days, we would get like a fourth edition book, like the Monster Manual fourth edition. And like on the third entry and the second stat block, like our eyes would start to cross a little bit and we would just say, well, I could, I can stat these monsters out. And then you kind of look at the names of their special abilities and jot those down and you stat them out yourself. And when we were doing that, just because of impatience, basically, that's when some of these practices that are really the foundation of uh, index card RPG were born, which is like timers and, you know, unified targets and stuff, uh, you know, like realizing we didn't really care what the armor class on a different monster was versus what the save was for the magma. <laughs> realizing that wasn't salient to our group. That just felt like us being bums, you know, it was just us like drinking beer on Saturday. That was not meant to be an idea. Um, but then when fifth edition came out, it was really illuminating. Same with Dungeon World and, and Burning Wheel. There was a whole interesting period there. It's like five years ago now when I feel there was a, a little bit of an innovation shift and especially Dungeon World, which I wound up really not playing, but it, it really kicked me upside the head. That made me see that we did kind of have our own game. And then when I saw 5e, I thought, I don't feel like they went as far as we did, as far as like innovating from fourth edition. And we started kind of feeling cool about our, our little packs that we had. We had all these just little, you know, scotch tape shortcuts. And um, that's kind of when it was born. And then it went through a few different iterations um, but we, we also just, whenever we didn't have something cool at the table, we would just write the word or do like a stick figure on an index card. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't tell you how many like boss monsters we had that were just like a skull with like a Santa Claus hat on an index card. That's like stood on its end <laughs> and you move that around your map and it's in your imagination how badass it is, but we would need a, a thing. And so the, the name of, of my, uh, my system really was never even meant to be ironic. It was meant to be 100% just like upfront, like Sharpie and an index card or a set of them, like you're ready to go. Like, and that's kind of where we had come from. Because now you talk about the index card RPG mentality, mindset, sorry, the mindset. Mm. Um, so, so is that mindset partly the... The, the the rough and ready figures on the cards. Um, what yeah, what is that? Sorry, <laughs> what is that mindset? I think I think the the biggest part of that mindset is sort of um, sort of the phrase of like trust the hobbyist, and and it's the game itself, it's the book itself that needs to trust the hobbyist, and and what I mean by trust is is I probably don't need to tell you how to resolve firing a cannon from one ship to another. I probably don't need to tell you like how to have a character roll to throw a grapple hook around a tree limb and climb up. I probably don't need to tell you how to like have one character, you know, aim a shot for the eye socket of the goblin and like how to modify that role. And so you're a hobbyist, you, you know what to do. And if you do it wrong, that's fine too. Mm. But I think once you take that fundamental leap as a designer to say, I trust the person reading this, it sets you free of so much detail and sort of wall of text type stuff. 
And so to me, the process of iterating index card RPG has actually been a stripping, a stripping back to the essence rather than an, an additional technique, which I know if, if I were a large company, this would be a horrible revenue concept. You know, this, this does not add up the way that, you know, like lots of supplement books add up. But in my mindset, I would say, hey, look, here's a couple ideas for, uh, say, the hell setting. You know, everybody's excited about hell settings right now. So here's a couple ideas you might want to play with and go for it. So I use, you know, four pages rather than 400. And that makes me not a very brilliant seller of books. But as a designer, to me, that's just that feels so close to what I look for in my material. So I kind of have to sacrifice the big stacking sales for what you're describing as the mindset, which is the, the do it yourself mindset. You know, you don't need all this me to tell you, as a matter of fact, you don't want it. You know, the fun of being a great game master is designing how you're going to resolve how one ship shoots a cannon at another, not being told. And, and I think that to me, that's the mindset. And that's what has, it's so funny, but the index card has become almost like a totem of that idea to me. It's like a, it's like, I don't know. I want like a gilded one on a wooden base. You know what I mean? Like the idea of this, this super simple, super cheap, universally understood tool that can be used by game masters to make their stuff rather than looking at a book. Maybe you should start, you know, an annual, golden index card award ceremony with a really like a one ton trophy <laughs> I love that, that people can't and it's scratched into the into the index yeah. card yes yeah, so i'm emailing a sculptor i'm like okay I'll, I'll be sending you the index card to be bronzed next week it should be there in your inbox soon it's like what's what's happening exactly <laughs> i one 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 concept that i really like is that of syntax and and I realized I've been mulling it over and I and I think what you've really helped me with and I'm sure other people as well is giving some sense of the syntax of the hobby of role playing mm. and so for me I understand syntax as being the fabric by which something comes into being mm -hmm. and of course the classic thing would be a meshing of a weaving of form and content which we could translate to mechanics and narrative, let's say. But I also think, I, this occurred to me as well, that you've also got the syntax of the, the visual graphic and the, uh, the verbal graphic, and then the way that you're packaging all of that together. So there's a, there's a I think there's a multi, and of course on the table, you know, all of the great stuff you've done with what you're putting on the table with the index cards or with the, the figures or the what do you call them the architectural nodes or <laughs> whatever they, you know so 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 you you you've given a really juicy overview of the syntax of the hobby without it tipping one way or the other and without reducing the role of the mechanics in that mm. Uh, yeah, which, I mean, I, I hope so. That is definitely the goal. And and to deliver that syntax in the fewest possible terms, I think is also just something I'm working on over time. And that's maybe why, you know, some folks out there are seeing less of me over time, is that 
a lot of that work has sort of gotten done in my mind. And now it's more, there's a lot of this time left and like, okay, what, how do I push this tighter? Which to me almost feels like, like almost like doing mathematics or something like, yeah, I can prove it with like 70 terms, but wouldn't it be great if we could get a little like EMC squared type looking term, like that's really tight and that's worth that work. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's something that would continue to boil down to a, a, a better and better essence. If you're into sort of minimalism and cleanliness, if you're into lots and lots and stacks and stacks, there are a lot of great RPGs out for that too. And as, and as well, I think that another kind of penny that really dropped was, was that you make everything count. You, you really push, <laughs> push the idea that there needs to be pressure, time constraints, challenge you know real challenge not a kind of yeah i mean that no nowhere more did i kind of overdo that thesis than on the this sort of trap theory stuff that i did so Great. basically just yeah surmising that actually every single thing you do in your game if it's not a trap just eliminate it because that's really all this whole thing is <laughs> and i was being a little you know a little axiomatic about it um, but that was, to me, was going to make the thesis work was I had to go all in if I was going to dare a, a statement like that. Um, but, you, but you've also got that in your, in your um, perception check stuff and, and line of sight as well, you know, negative and positive line of sight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's really, really cool. Stuff. Yeah, and always I, trying to pull and confine and then spring oh, just over and over and over again, like... <laughs> find a way to lure them in and then show, shut the back door and then drop a rock on them like that. That's everything. <laughs> you know, as, as, as you point out, these are the staple components, but sometimes it feels as if I don't know that, that they haven't, they haven't always been grabbed in a, in a, in a practical, practicable yeah. way that you can actually put on you know you can actually use with that with that focus so yeah well I, I do think that there's there's also something to be said for style you know and so to me um you know sometimes if you have a game with like variable initiative and like a lot of cross talk and a lot of kind of just like wandering down the road talking about your emotional motivations there are some people who just that's what they gather to do so rock on I don't want to ever make it sound like that's flawed because it's not, you know, trappy enough. Um, but I do try to represent like my style with fervor rather than, you know, caveat everything I say with, you know, it's like, Hey, trap theory is really smart unless you don't like it. Like I, that doesn't make a very interesting thesis to me. So I always try to be very like, you know, King Lear style, you know, you're kind of making your final speech before it's game time. Yeah. I you know, that's that's something that I've thought a lot about as well. This this thing of what what kind of gamer are you? What do you like? Mm. Do you like cards? Do you like dice? Do you like what you know, whatever, what kind of things make sense to you? Not only do you yeah. enjoy, but what what makes sense to you and you can yeah. and you can comprehend and and, so, and it changes over time too. I mean, and this is something that, that is is tough when you're on YouTube is like YouTube is anathema to change. It just doesn't seem to want you to change. And I just can't deny that I change. Like a lot has changed in my last six years of everyone's life, I think. 
And so like, just pursuant to what you're just saying, like, I definitely have more of an interest in cards, just a 52 card deck than I did five years ago. There's something very interesting about it, but it won't satisfy, you know, all the itches and the urges, you know, you're just not going to get that kind of the critical hit kind of, um, but I think that that rise and fall, at least I try to be vocal about this, is something that should be just, just enjoy it. I mean, don't make it a job and don't listen to, to YouTube telling you not to change. Um, I, I think there's so much to explore. If you were to not change over the course of years, that would be weirder, actually. <laughs> then, you know, one year you're just all about, you're playing like, you know, 40K, like for two years straight. And then you're playing crazy eights with your uncle for the next two years. I don't think that's weird. <laughs> that, that almost makes a lot of sense because you need a break from all that destruction and all that tactical thinking. Mm. And you want to get down to like, just trying to figure out like, you know, does he have clubs or hearts in his hand? I just, uh, this, is, this is a final decision here. I need to decide. And then you look at him, you know, give him the eyebrow, see if he'll give it away. Like that, that's a great game too. So I just, I like to just wander a little bit and see what's uh, what's interesting next. But right now I'm really into the, the four suit concept. I find it really interesting. Okay, the, 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 first, the first video of yours that I got into, the, the way I found you was the innovative mechanics video mm. where, you, where you talk about Genesis and, yeah. and the, 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 your homebrewed version of the narrative dice. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what happened to that set? What's what else is there about that? Where's, what's it doing? They're, well, they're in my skull. I have a big glass skull, and it contains all my all my dice that aren't like in in you know active rotation. Um, but I did when I went to uh, RageCon in Reno. Um, we did screw around with the skull, the game of skulls, which uses like binary skull dice. And then we also kind of screwed around like after hours with this kind of homebrew narrative dice thing. And to me, it's really cool as a design, but the minute that I found myself doing it, I just couldn't get the wires of emotion to connect in the brain. So the, the intellectual part of my brain loved it. It was so interesting and came fraught with detail. But when I would bust a roll out, I didn't know how to feel. And if you don't feel something in the first like couple microseconds when that dice is tumbling, then to me, it's not working. You know what I mean? It's not like, come on, bang symbol. You know, I, I couldn't, my brain doesn't work that way. But if you see a D20 rolling and you see the 14 go by and you know that that 20 might come over or it might stop and it might slide on the 14 or worse yet, go to the eight. You know, because they're next to the 20 and you know that because you've rolled this thing a million times. When it's spinning and you think it's going to land <laughs> yeah. on the one, you can see it. Mm. To me, that's where, yes, the dice gives you nothing as far as detail or fraught with narrative. It gives you absolutely nothing, but it gives you so much emotion that it just, even just pressing the little D20 icon on roll 20 is exciting for that same reason. It's, it, it is abstract, but man, is it like, Duh! it's just so simple and i never found that those those sort of symbol dice had that capability interesting because because on because on one of your on your podcast on dice um you you say that that nobody's 
perfected the dice pool, a dice pool system. And yeah. what I wanted to say is, I don't think I've perfected it, but thanks to you, thanks to you, which I've been working on for a while, I think I've got something interesting. Excellent. And so if, if can, I, can, I, can I have a bit of a wager with you? What if Ooh. I managed to send you a fully functioning kit around this time next year? Would you give it a go? <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. Okay. You get one year. Wow. One year. But anyway, that's enough about me. I would love to hear <laughs> about the next thing is collaboration because it, it from from my position it feels like you've gone well I don't well there's always your you talk about you've always talked about your group but then it was very much you putting the stuff out and now it feels like you've you've been started to include people much more mm. in, in what ACRPG is and what it's doing yeah. and I was just really interested in how all of that I suppose it was a, a natural outgrowth of of changing roles a little bit. So, uh, you know, because of the completely unpredicted and unexpected success and stickiness of Index Card RPG, instead of, you know, that great feeling of, of GMing for a group and really your focus is on these, you know, four or five people and you can think within that confine like every damn week you can think about this arc that's rising and this potential interest over here. And this one guy who's kind of descending and you know, you can play with that and you can, and so that's, you know, I was familiar with that, but then as things began to grow with Runehammer unexpectedly, I found myself feeling like I was almost like GMing for a zillion people in a way, like, especially sometimes in the summer when things are really, active i'm getting you know dozens if not more than a hundred private messages like per day they're just coming and i'm sure like you know people more popular than me get you know an exponent more than that but i try to answer every single one like right when it comes in and you start to get this this weird experience that I actually it's kind of a real privilege which is hearing everybody's questions comments concerns and you're like sitting there at the focal point of it it's really really fun but also in a way you begin to lose touch with that old mindset of all i had was my four players and so for me this is sort of a natural outgrowth of that is that the more this stuff happened the more i was looking around and accidentally meeting really smart people and just wanting to you know screw around with them on a project or pick their brain and it just sort of naturally starts happening and then that's when you start telling yourself well this isn't just a friendship where we're screwing around this is now got a, a nice capital c on it this is a collaboration and we're like this has this has teeth um and, and you know a few of those people have come and gone you know but and they're great and there's more arriving and it's definitely like a mindset is to go into collaborative mindset like wow maybe i'll just start doing this stuff so as as the gm of a million people um, did it then feel like maybe the, I don't want to say it's five again, but you've got your little group now of collaborators, which is kind of like a, I don't want to say higher level, but at, a, at another remove. So instead of you GMing for a small group, is that a bit like 
something like overseeing another group of workers. I, I, well, yeah, it is. It is. It is like a lot like that. I mean, uh, you know, like my main sort of week to week group are all GMs. Okay. And so when we're playing, which isn't ideal for everything, by the way, but but when we're playing, we all have that mindset of wanting to be a great player to back up the GM, you know. To, and how, how do people overcompensate for that then? <laughs> well, I think the trouble isn't in the overcompensating. I think the trouble is in all GMs have an urge to kind of take a turn, right? To get in the get in the chair, so to speak. And it's not always good for the game when you're rotating GMs like month to month or whatever. It can become disjointed and you can lose some like, you know, one little set of nuanced rules maybe doesn't carry over. And there's a lot of little nuance in it that I didn't really see coming, but um, I'm sure some of your listeners out there have had this experience of like in the course of a year, having six GMs on the same sort of player group or storyline can be a little wild. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of what happened. And the reason that started playing online more is the people that I really, really related to um, as a sort of creator and a GM weren't in my town. You know, like I've, I've been blessed with great players, but not a lot of my player friends really are into GMing like I am. You know, they don't buy books just to read them, just to comprehend them and put them away. <laughs> you know, they just want to, they want to know their book and their class and show up and play it well. You know what I mean? So it is a different mindset. And I think the wider you go with your perception, the more you see, you find kindred souls out there and gather them and you want to work with them and collaborate with them. Mm, mm, mm. Um, would that lead us into your current ICRPG project, Altered State? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Alex Alvarez, who's the lead on Altered State, which I think it's easy for people to forget that because he keeps a low profile, but he is the lead writer and the lead designer. He, you know, was my GM two years ago. So when we were playing that whole um, Snake Hunter series where I was the, the bug wizard, I was like a wizard that's a swarm of bugs, you know, kept in a robe. Um, and so he was just my GM and did a great job with that whole thing. And so as that was concluding and we're moving into another game, we're kind of then breaking off into our own little subgroup and saying, hey, man, we're kind of on a similar level here as far as like how we're thinking we should start to experiment. And then, yeah, then you get into trusting your collaborator a little more and, you know, practicing non-judgment during the idea phase, you know, I, what's called the Osborne method, you know, later was called brainstorming, you know, but it's basically just the collaborator says something, you just assume it's cosmic law and go with that. And then you say your piece and hope that they trust you in the same way and kind of just get the, you know, rope a dope as they say. And you do a few of those and then you're ready for a bigger commitment saying, hey, dude, why don't you lead this next project and you just tell me what art to do and I'll just do it. I mean, mm. that'll be a rush. And he's like, oh, I'm way ahead of you. I already been working on this other thing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that figures, I knew it, you know, hit me and then you're off and running. Because, because so, so of course it uses the ICRPG system. So that's kind of yeah. you. Um, and then as you say, Alex is, is is the lead writer on this particular on the text if you like but then but then is this you're kind of bursting into color as well aren't you for this project into technicolor like the wizard of oz or something yeah totally yeah, i mean it just 
it's a bit inevitable. And, you know, on Patreon in, uh, geez, was it October, um, kind of asked all my patrons, what do you want to see me do? Like, let's just try something crazy. And they wanted me to make a, a system neutral setting. And so that felt like a little bit of freedom from my sort of Sharpie, black Sharpie style that I've been representing. And I honestly, that can be feel a little confining to an artist. Um, so I was like, I'm going to go into crazy land. And that's when I did Bearcats, which has such a, bit, a wacky, bizarre palette that's like mm -hmm. based on like peach ice cream type colors. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and so then when Altered State was starting to come up, I was just like, ooh, like ideas for a palette, you know, and started goofing around with like this sort of, you know, pukey yellow and these kind of sky blue colors and like finding where the pink lives in there. And um, yeah, so I, I don't think that that kind of technicolor feel that Altered State has will ever be, you know, core index card RPG. I think it's it's a little bit of a violation of the, pick up your Sharpie in your card and you can do this. You know, it's a little bit like behold the, the cool art, which isn't quite that same trusting the hobbyist type thing, but as a supplement, you know, as an expansion sort of to your next card, I just wanted to cut it loose. Like, let's just, let's just let it fly. And thanks to like having a lot of great commission clients for the last three years, it's been the ultimate crucible of learning. I mean, nothing will make you better at what you do than, you know, being rushed and paid to do it like on the daily. That will really press your skills and you don't want to let any of give any one individual down. So they want crazy stuff. They want this whole poster with all these characters. You're like, I've never done anything like that, but you got to get it done. They're giving it to their friend as a present. So there's a time limit. And like, before you know it, you know, it's just my, my skills had, I hope improved a little bit. So I, mm. I hope that's coming through an altered state. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and yeah, would you like to say a little bit about the differences in the system or what you, what you were, what you were going for with the cyberpunk? Because you often say that cyberpunk was your, your beginning. Yeah. Uh, um, and and yeah. so I was kind of wondering, well, why, why didn't you start with that when you, when you came up with ICRPG? <laughs> well, to start there, it, I, I think cyberpunk is very prickly. And, and I, I've discovered that I think I'm right on that. Like, it's, it's a lot harder to come in cold with a group of people and say, let's play some cyberpunk and expect them to know what they're dreaming up. I think it's just such a large and cryptic genre mm -hmm. that I think that that is not meat and potatoes like fantasy. You come in and you say, okay, guys. We're going into like, you know, Middle Earth. And everybody's just like, ooh, 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 I want to be blah. And everybody just knows it. Um, and so I think that's why fantasy is still like so core to everything. But with Altered State, we wanted to do, we had a few priorities. One was, you know, to, to really nail it, to treat cyberpunk in a, in a touchable kind of human way, a lot like how Blade Runner does. You know, Blade Runner doesn't get into pink mohawks and you know, jump jet boots and, you know, wacky stuff like it. it's much more human. So we wanted to think human like that. Um, we also wanted to avoid this kind of virtual part. Um, I think a lot of cyberpunk stumbles into this virtual fascination, which, you know, and a lot of them to the game's detriment, like we've all played Shadowrun where there's a Decker screwing around in virtual space and we're all just like, what's happening? Like we're over here and it's honestly not that cool, but 
more interestingly to me, I don't think the future looks very virtual. I don't think the, the virtual part of life really has proved to be nearly as sticky as we anticipated it to be about six, seven years ago. It seemed, I mean, anyone who's experienced it knows it's amazing, but it's stickiness just isn't there. You, you, it doesn't feel good being in there alone. It doesn't feel good having stuff on your head. You know, headphones are bad enough, much less, you know, face phones. And um, I, I just think that a higher tech world is going to have less screens. And, and I think that's a, a bit of a departure from what a lot of uh, cyberpunk wants to show us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to play with that too. You know, like I love how the Star Wars universe does this. There's very few screens. It's more like blinking lights on little screenless doodads. And I love that it removes this data overload kind of feeling to the world. And those, you um, know, those those holograms and the Harryhausen fighting creatures. But yeah, those, yeah. Those figures, you know, when the Emperor's introduced in this kind of yeah, and it's very analog. He's not. He doesn't have like a bunch of rings and readouts on him and stuff. Mm. It, to me, it's much more futuristic that way. So we wanted to embrace that. And then finally, I think maybe our biggest one is that we wanted to put our our world after what I think a lot of people are familiar with cyberpunk, which is like, you know, these big holographic Atari ads and, you know, streets lined with Japanese neon signs, cars and huge crowds. We wanted to say that actually that was like almost 150 years before what we're doing. Like it's all over. That whole glory day was a completely misguided, you know, wreckage of an idea that kind of scorched the earth a little bit. And now, like, a lot of power has been lost. The population's very small. So you have this wilderness feel. And, and that, that feel of a wilderness that's built out of metal, to me, is really fun. Where it's, it's dark. There's no supplies. There's no access. And that brings you almost all the way back to fantasy. So, 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 so just to get you right here, the, the wil- there's a wilderness element even in the urban space. There's got to be, I think, for a game to work. Mm. That's the problem with living our modern lives is that we're not in a wilderness. It's, it's what makes our modern lives sort of cloying sometimes. Uh, I mean, we have a lot that is wonderful to have, but the absence of wilderness, I think in our daily lives is almost one of the reasons we even play RPGs is to, to feel that cool feeling of walking out across the field and it's just dark over there. It's not like, oh, yeah, we're going to Essex. <laughs> no, there's a, Essex isn't there. You know, it's just a hill now with a weird shape on it. And we're just walking over there like, what's going to happen? Mm. To me, that, that's the magic that in some ways our world lacks because it's so developed. So if you imagine cyberpunk as a, a hyper-developed world, I don't want to play there. Uh, there's police everywhere. And, like, I have to have money and pay my bills and, like, I have to wedge my way through crowds of people and none of those things sound pleasant to me. <laughs> because I suppose, I suppose, you know, industry and economics and technology generally go against strangeness. There's got to yeah. be a certain thing that happens that makes these things strange again. And maybe you're, I don't know, you know, Heidegger's classic thing is the broken hammer the hammer is strange when it's broken. And I've always found that a bit kind of head scratchy, but I think you have those kind of moments where you look at something and you think, that thing's really weird. <laughs> it's like a curved piece of metal and a stick. What, do I, what is that? Yeah, and I think like one of the simplest ones you can choose is light itself. 
the hyperdeveloped world is so bathed in light that there's no use for me to have my little torch or flashlight. And so I, it shrinks me, but in a dark world, you know, our light becomes this amazing little, you know, sort of revelation sphere that we move around and we find things. Mm. But if I just am in a hyperdeveloped world and I have computers at my fingertips, I mean, I get right to the sushi restaurant without incident, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is kind of what we want in modern life. But in a game, I, I feel that, you know, anywhere you go, having a feeling of absence of light or of certainty is the key to it being a wilderness, the key to it being fun in a game. And the the two, the second, the second and third Max, Mad Max films, I think, have this interesting thing where there's this slight slippage that within a lifetime, uh, more or less, you can, it, it's possible to forget quite where everybody's come and who, who, mm -hmm. is, who is who and right, where they've right. been, you know, the, so this, this kind of the legendary emerges or, or you know, the, I, I quite like Mad Max 3 and when the kids are doing that home <laughs> home cinema thing with the, Yeah, the pocky clips, yeah. You know, that's, there's, there's some nice stuff there. So they've got this memory of television and cinema, but it's, it's, it's a loss, it's a kind of half lost yeah. memory, which... Yeah, I liked how they did that in Reign of Fire too, you know, and, and Reign of Fire had only been like, what, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And already the older sort of way of life on Earth was, you know, sort of something to be nostalgic about. You know, how they do the kind of the Star Wars presentation down in the basement, you know, you're not my father and all that stuff. And it's like, yay. And I think that makes that a world I want to adventure in. You know, even though as a world we want to be in, I mean, geez, it's horrible. It's like the whole world is burnt to a crisp, but for a, for a game setting, it's great because you matter so much and like everything's dark and you need to go out there and, and find and explore. And, and that's what we wanted in our cyberpunk. Mm, mm. And I know, right, you know, you've, you've said that it's, it's coming, altered state is coming in parallel with your retune uh, book. Mm -hmm. Please, yeah. could you tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> well, Retune is my sort of experiment in branching narrative. So at the end of each little block of text, you have a binary choice. And if I do my job right, it's like an, it's sort of an agonizing choice that's going to make you be like, rather than a right or left type of feel. And then what we did was, while Alex was working more on the game side of things, I wanted to set down the names for the world and set down the the way the geography was and like what technology feels like, what people are like, like, and the tone too. Like I didn't want to have like a, a crass tone because I do think that's another one of the things that makes fantasy great is that it has this underlying noble tone. No bad so language. Wanted, well, there's a little bit of bad language. Yeah. I mean, everything good has bad language, but you know what I mean? We've all seen like the sort of crass, like Night City is actually a good example of, of pretty, you know, guttery feeling cyberpunk. You know, everything's got a little bit of a, hey, you know, what are you doing out there, Jugger? You know, this kind of a blah, you know, like everything's got trash on it. And like everything's, you know, taped together and it's this real, you know, kind of grungy feeling. And I didn't really want all that. I wanted it to be simpler and the good guys to be good guys. And those aren't things you can really put in a game system. 
And so for me to do that, I, I wanted to make this novel. And I also wanted to toy with how we're doing uh, retuning itself, which is where, you know, you kind of get your consciousness put in a new body and, and what that feels like and how I treat that subject. So it doesn't just get kind of flippantly tossed about. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, the goal is then to release the novel and the RPG kind of as a side by side. So, so instead of, instead of publishing a, a fluff book, is it that you're actually publishing a branching narrative book instead? I, it feels kind of that way. Yeah. Okay. It, it's a little bit like, here's, here's one vision of this, you know, from a, from a human point of view, you know, I don't do a lot of, since it is branching narrative, I don't do a lot of like huge descriptive exposition text, mm -hmm. you know, it's all you. So I just have to stick right to what you see and experience. So it's, it feels like a bit gamey in a way. It feels very just about you all the time. So you're just living in that little sphere of awareness. And it, mm -hmm. it, it kind of varies widely too. Some of it's really violent. Like at one point you steal like a cargo plane and then on the way a different end of the spectrum, like there's part where you're, you're sort of, it's like a sad scene and you'd like, you're sort of taking these kind of weird consciousness expanding pills in this bar with this sort of cybernetic girl. And, and those wildly different possibilities to me are what made this such a fun genre for doing branching narrative. Whereas fantasy, I don't think I would be able to quite go as crazy. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. just so much to play with in this world as far as big and small, fast and slow, violent and peaceful. And like, so hopefully all these things will come together. It's been a real challenge writing this damn thing. It's taking a while. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Because in a normal novel, you would generally not feel first person. You wouldn't feel that it's you who's in no, not at the all. story. Yeah. Uh, but as soon yeah. as you give it the branching narrative, uh, as uh, almost as if every, every step of the way, you're getting deeper and deeper yourself into that zone. Yeah, yeah hopefully. If, if it's written well, that's exactly where you should be. And that's why the choices should get harder and harder. And, mm -hmm. and it is what I wanted to present too, you know, like in the beginning, some of the choices are a little more tactical and you might just kind of have like a whim, but then later, like, yeah, you kind of either want to reach what you're reaching for, or you want to save who you care about. And you reach, of course, everything is a dilemma because that's the structure of the book. So you're always reaching these dilemmas of like, oh, why can't we just go do the thing? It always has to wind up with this dilemma, you know, so... Hopefully that'll that'll hit the pavement. It's just been a challenge. And so, how how have you structured that process without you know without going into real time Oof. detail? Well, I I screwed it up for the past two years. I kept trying and not liking it. The first one I did was called Nomads of Scar, and it just did not work. And I wanted it to work and tried a few others, but and was that a fantasy one? Was Nomads of Scar a fantasy one? Yeah, it was fantasy, okay. but it was like savanna fantasy. So you're like kind of a 10,000 BC kind of feel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I think the, the, the moment I solved the Rubik's cube and got one of the sides to match colors, it was sort of finally getting how to like map down just the prompts. And I talked about this in my podcast too, about just prompting myself and writing that out into a tree, like a chart. And this, these are little, you know, little branching bubbles. And instead of trying to figure out what the bubbles were, I would just write like a three word prompt mm -hmm. with absolutely no idea how to make it all work and stitch it together. 
but at least it stopped me from moving and changing and, and restarting. So when I would go to a block, I would read like the block that led me there. I'd read my little three or four word prompt and then go. And, and that's when I made a big leap because I would just, once I got flow going, you just hit that prompt and you know exactly what it means. You know, like the prompt says like, you know, um, you know, enter a firefight with the juggers or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I have a little outcome prompt that says you either need to go here or here at the end and the middle's blank. So then I'm like, oh, well, I know exactly what you would say to these guys as you're starting a firefight. Mm -hmm. So da, 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 and it just starts flowing out. And that's when I kind of broke the dam finally. These, I mean, these structures I always think are really interesting because on the one hand, you've got discrete subunits, but then they also feed into a bigger thing. So it sounds mm. to me like you've got this sense that each block has its own energy, its own gravity, focus, whatever. But then within that, it's it's part of a larger constellation. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning of the book, you, you're definitely presented with some stuff that that calls you to action. Mm -hmm. You know, like like any good RPG session. You know, I can't just necessarily let you float. I I unfortunately need to kind of poke you in the ribs to to get you out of your town. You know, to get you moving. And you know, some of them are extreme. And some mm -hmm. of them are more thoughtful. Um, mm -hmm. But the extreme ones, then I just use it over and over again to press the dilemmas. I, I take you back to why you're out here in these situations in the first place and remind you to think of that as you're making your next choice. So, so if I'm a more thoughtful reader, player, mm -hmm. um, would I be dragged into some extreme stuff? And if I was a more extreme reader, player, would I be dragged into some more thoughtful stuff? I think there's a couple little there's a little couple little dips in the water, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, partially just to keep things working in a cohesive fashion. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, there are the way that the book works. There's there's right now it looks like there's going to be eight endings, but there are a, a lot of paths in there where you just won't get the stuff, and you can still reach one of the endings, maybe even the one that you kind of fits you the best. Mm -hmm. But you won't, you'll notice like, man, there's like 40 blocks that I never even read. You know, even though I kind of took this long winding path and then maybe you go back in the book and you skim and you're like, who the hell's Jenna? Like, I never <laughs> met anyone named, who's that, you know? And then that, hopefully that makes you sort of start twirling this cube around. And, and that's kind of where I wanted it to go. And I think that's why I've been having such a hard time with it. But really, I think getting past the halfway point I think I feel like I can do it. It's just a matter of that that stubbornness <laughs> to finish a creative project. These the, the prompts that you talked about made me think of this thing that you've got in altered state, or you, that you really emphasize in altered state, which I can't find the page of here. Um, <laughs> which is you know these locations in the setting that mm -hmm. you use as a base. Um, it just made me think of a similarity there. What do you call them? Sorry, I've forgotten that. I can't find it. Well, you know, I did, we did that in Bearcats as well, where we had just like a D20 uh -huh. represents the whole setting. And so you can kind of just go, hey, where's the, where's the radio tower? And then you can roll and then, oh, it's crap. It's on the other end of town. Or you roll and then, oh, hey, great. It's right across the street. And that way it takes away all that responsibility mm -hmm. um, for the GM. 
Um, and mm -hmm. in some ways, Retune thinks that way too. Altered State though is a very simple world. It's kind of has like, you know, a dozen locations in a way. Um, mm -hmm. At the detail level, it has infinite locations, but it's it's really simple compared to like trying to do Earth, for example. <laughs> you know, there's really only like three cities in Altered State. And they, you know, it's, it's kind of like Mega Man, right? Like Mega Man's kind of in the future, but really you're kind of just like in one city and then you're like in a hole. And that's kind of <laughs> it. <laughs> you know? But it doesn't feel that way because you're always focused on the details, you know, the little guy with the helmet that's popping up. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's how I like to sort of imagine RPG stuff is like at that Mega Man level, mm -hmm. you can have a city scrolling by in the back. That's great. But you're more worried about the little guy with the helmet popping up than the city. I enjoyed your podcast on the mega cities and, and how to get them into the game. Um, mm. it, you know, it's got a nice, you know, you, you take us on a merry, uh, on a merry ride and then it's whoop. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so I won't spoil it for anyone who should listen to it, but it, you know, it really reminded me, you know, you really reminded us that, if you think of a film like Blade Runner, there's what four or five settings, yeah. The you know locations, and you don't. Yeah. And when you think about the film, you think, "Wow, there's so much stuff going on." I suppose the street is always there, and that has that feeling of depth. But but it's but you know really you're coming back to only a few places. Yeah. I mean, I love in the first film how they do the Tyrell Corporation. Right, it's this massive pyramid building that's like this, basically an icon of brutalist architecture now that so many years have passed. It's this huge edifice that dominates this city and there must be thousands of people doing all kinds of weird shit in there. But all you ever see is like the elevator and like Tellerell's like chess room. Mm. And, and that to me is a perfect example of like focusing on what matters, not making sure it's all there. You know, you don't need to go to all the countless science floors where they're investigating polypeptide chains. Mm. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to do that. What you want to do is take the elevator up and meet mm. Tyrell at the chessboard, mm. you know, and then push your thumbs through his eyes. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's what's so great. The, 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 they've already had the deep freeze scene and they've had the, uh, you know, the, 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 or there's the, you know, the snake scale mm -hmm. scene and yeah. which feeds into the street and all of so you don't you don't you're not thinking about wanting to see any more of that stuff because you you just have that feeling that it's there yeah and i think the second one they did it even more i think the second one they they truly vignetted the world you know like that opening scene is him sleeping in his car you know that's just such a and he goes out and meets one person mm. you know and that's just so and yet it carries all this futuristic sort of tension with it and it's just so little it's basically an apartment a tree and a car mm. and now all that cool and it includes a cool combat scene like they kind of let mm. you in on the world and like all this great stuff and they just micronize it down and down i just i love that mm. property of both films i think it's just genius well i wonder i wonder if hank this is enough for now <laughs> we'll never know <laughs> because if we stop then it may not be and if we keep going it might be too much <laughs> well well before 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 i do potentially let you go um 
on the show we have the ludic behemoth ah uh, yes which is some kind of strange creature ludic a, a matmos yes absolutely right with but with a bit more going to it. it's you know it sucks things in <laughs> where the, do people go into the matmos i can't remember i don't yeah i remember they had that tube that you would go in there and it would like pleasure you and then you'd pop back out <laughs> i guess it's kind of it's kind of like that and what what i'm what i'm asking everyone everyone is to offer something to the ludic behemoth and it's and it's two things the first thing is um a game mechanic or component and the second thing is an underrated character archetype or skill right right well okay the second one is the easier one because i'm neck deep in it as we speak so mm -hmm. for the underrated character type um my character right now, the main one that I'm playing week to week is named Case, and he's a Decker in Altered State. And for the first time in untold years, I am playing a character who is sort of, I guess the, the buzzword for it would be surprised, mm -hmm. is that he, he is surprised by things. And this isn't necessarily an archetype that I like set out to create. It was a little bit of an accident but basically this is a character who has never done any of this stuff before. And it doesn't make him like a, a noob or like a, you know, a tool. He's not like, you know, a bumbler. Cause I think that's a pretty common archetype actually. He's good at stuff, but when some new challenge pops up, you know, there's like a synthetic life form. It has three arms and like a blaster rifle. Case is always like, what the hell is this, man? This stuff is crazy. Are you guys seeing this? Like they don't have, this isn't real. I, I heard this stuff isn't real, you know, this kind of stuff. And then also like when huge firefights break out, like he just jumps behind something, <laughs> you know, like, like a smart person would do, you know? So I have my teammates who are, you know, like all gung ho badasses and Case is still courageous and he still sacrifices for his teammates, but he's just constantly like, what the hell is that, man? This is crazy. You know, or like, He'll, he'll get a, like a high success and just be like, can you believe I just nailed that? that was <laughs> you know, so again, it's like just a general tone of being surprised. And I think it's funny to me this is underplayed because it really boosts your opponent, your, um, your teammates. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you're kind of like, wow, you know, it, it makes them feel even bigger and even cooler. And it, it's, it's a form of like support character. I think that's, maybe forgotten a little bit or maybe accidentally becomes a bumbler too much because I don't, I don't like playing a bumbler i have played a bumbler i played moak in the odium games and he would always run the wrong direction and like attack the wrong target and he's just like a real but he kind of is a really friendly guy <laughs> he just doesn't really get what's going on okay so anyways the surprise character that's my underplayed one so so as 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 a as a as a, if you like a role play idea you've just been finding it just spins out and out and out and out and it becomes not only a bigger part of your character it also then starts to have an influence on the team and yeah, on absolutely. the game yeah mm. like here's a, here's another example is like you imagine the badass character with like all this arsenal of weapons and we have this threat up ahead and they zero in on it and they start moving to get into a tactical position. Whereas Case like gets left behind for a second and then he's like, ah, and just runs over to the um, Kelsey's character, Ruby, who has all the guns 
and basically just puts a hand on her shoulder and like hides wherever she's hiding mm -hmm. because he just doesn't, you know, he doesn't have like tactical SWAT knowledge. And so right away, just doing that is a real boost to your fellow player because they feel like they're like locking down the tactical situation mm -hmm. and, and you're just following them and like you're, they're kind of responsible for you all of a sudden. And like, it comes with a lot of nice little tidbits without you having to play, you know, like the kid mm -hmm. or, or the frightened villager, you know, you don't have to take it that far. Um, okay. The other one is, um, oh, is a favorite mechanic mm. or like a mechanic to, to hurl into the behemoth. Yes. To um, offer, to offer for, to offer, for, to offer up for reverence <laughs> in the future, to be, yes. to be, to be used more, to be, to be allowed to, to draw breath for another year. I must give this, mechanic forth. Um, well, I guess it's also from this recent generation of ideas we've had, which started with Bearcats mm -hmm. and kind of evolved into Altered State, um, which are um, like rolling on the rolling on the state of things, rolling on the stakes of the situation or rolling on the outcome of a situation. And this is done before anything else is done in the game. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, you could even simplify it to say like rolling on location could even be simpler. So it's like, Guys, we're going to start a new game. Where the hell are we? We're going to make one dice roll. You know, there's 12 possible outcomes. We're even going to like roll off a bunch of D20s to see who gets to make that dice roll. Mm -hmm. And then we'll deal with the consequences of it. So on a simpler level, you could do location. But I think on the most interesting level, you do like the stakes. So the stakes are like saying, if we fail as a team, this is what's going to happen. And it might single out a villain, like that could be one angle, or it could be a, like a, a large situation, or it could be an, an impending doom of some sort to use the sort of Adam Coble words. But you, you, you let a dice decide this sort of underpinning tone of the campaign, and the GM and the players are beholden to it. And I think that's really, really fun because later down the line, you look back at that role and you're like, oh man, we, we never could have known you know, how wacky this was going to get when we just rolled that simple thing. Like, you know, the, you know, like in Red Dawn, you know, the, the invading military will overtake good old American values that, that that's the stakes here. So if you don't care if that happens, then by all means, don't fight, you know, like, and so you're like, well, I don't want an invading military in my town. Are you kidding me? And like, bang, you're, you've begun. Like it started, the GM is kind of going, well, I'm going to need some tanks to crush a high school. Okay, we're going to do that. And like all wheels start turning. So I love the first creation of a game being making like a stakes table that's maybe eight things or 12 things. Mm -hmm. And then letting everybody read it. It's out in the open. And then like that fateful role when the, the campaign will take its flavor. I think that's really fun. So it's, it's, it's got some correlation with your timer dice a little bit, hasn't it? That you can see, you see what's coming, you see what the threat is. Yeah, you, yeah. Um, which, you know, that's a, that's classic uh, Hitchcock um, pillar of storytelling is openly tell the audience what's going to happen. And also Kurt Vonnegut was a big fan of that. He's, what did he say? Like he had some saying like suspense is a, the tool of a liar. You know, which is, if you know a thing about the story, you just tell the audience the minute you know. Now, how and when, they don't know that. But you see the guy with the knife, you know, like walking, and he's coming. And, and that's why it's exciting. If you never saw him, he would just like spring out of the bushes, you know, like the goblins at the beginning of Fandelver. You know, <laughs> like there's no suspense <laughs> there. Um, 
so yeah, I think knowing it is, is a big part of the fun. And if mm. you have, I think if you have good scenes, it's, it's built in, you know, like back to Red Dawn, you know, they're sitting there like shooting spitballs at each other and all these camouflage parachutes come down on their little mountain town. Mm-hmm. I think that says a great deal without mm-hmm. any words or anything. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like that conflict is so intrinsic mm-hmm. right away. You're like, Oh man, half of them are going to die. Half of them are going to get stubborn. One of them's going to like turn sadistic. You know, one of them's going to like blow somebody up on accident, like instantly start conjuring up all these stories. And I think that's when you've got a good, a good setup moment. You, you mentioned Hitchcock and um, I'm reminded of an anecdote and it's about chases. And I know you're a bit into chases at the moment mm. and you always talk about, Oh, Cthulhu does chases very well. So I'm yeah. looking forward to when you talk about that very much. Um, the anecdote is that Hitchcock apparently said, if you've got a car chase, you start off with the wide shots, you know, the, the helicopter shots, whatever. But once you're in the car, you don't leave the car. Oh, that's interesting. That's kind of like the Mega Man mindset. Like, don't go back out to be safe. Like, you're not safe in the helicopter anymore. You're you're in the Austin Martin, and there you must remain. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and also that you're that you're yeah you're you're focused in on these on these people, and then the yeah. micro decisions of will they do it, and all of that uncertainty that you have with the other car. The yeah. problem is not other people; it's the other car. Well, and you know, it's really, in a way, it's sort of juvenile to to want to see the two cars like caroming off of things and tumbling and crashing through fruit carts. It's sort of like a kid playing with toys. But when you're in the cockpit, like with Bond and he's driving through the street, that feels much more like adult and much, you know, much more, you know, fraught with nuance. Whereas, hey, cool, that car smashed into the other car you know that's a, that's a little more like first grade action you know like <laughs> but but i have to say i do like the blues brothers oh yeah <laughs> well that's a slightly different a slightly different beast with that pile up that's a, that's its own sort of almost form of performance art in a way <laughs> absolutely absolutely thank you hank thank you very much that was lovely hey yeah yeah, really enjoyable talking to you, man. I look forward, if we have another chance next year, maybe to talk again. Let's do it, and we'll press all the buttons this time. Excellent. See you. <laughs> all right, see you.